Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 68 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes where you'll get non-boring stories of the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all of the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Two quick things while you're listening today. Be sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. We love to read all of those on the air here. Plus, it of course, makes sure that other papal history nerds like you and I can find and enjoy the show as well. And a special thanks to Steve, our newest patron over at Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to every episode, among other things, head over to patreon.com slash thepopecast to join the party. That's patreon.com slash thepopecast. Our Pope this week voted in literally one million papal elections before it was finally his turn. At least it probably seemed like that to him. He was a child of the nobility who served the church from an early age, but there was just one small thing left to do after he got elected as the new Bishop of Rome. This week on the Popecast, it's the Pope who wasn't even a priest yet, Pope Nicholas III. It's a bit unusual for a pope to have a longer and more entertaining story before he became Vicar of Christ, but that appears to be the case with Nicholas III. Giovanni Gattani Orsini was born in Rome around the year 1216, a son of not one, but two of the most powerful and notorious families in Roman history. His father, Matteo Rosso, hailed from the Orsini clan, while his mom, Perna Gaetana, who was a member of the equally influential Gaetani family. The Orsinis had produced at least three popes already, the brothers Stephen II and Paul I in the 8th century, and Celestine III at the end of the 12th. And the Gitani, although Gelasius II was their first family pope, their most famous relative was yet to come in Pope Boniface VIII, not quite two decades after Nicholas reigned, and we'll hear more about Boniface in a little bit. At any rate, Nicholas III came from the noblest of stock. To be a member of either family in the high Middle Ages amounted to about 17 silver spoons in one's mouth, so to hail from both of them meant Giovanni probably had the finest chamber pots money could buy in the 1200s. Giovanni was the oldest of Matteo and Perna's nine sons and two daughters. For such a notable family, surprisingly little, though, is known of his early life. But then again, he wasn't far along in years before his family name thrust him into the Roman Curia, where he would remain for the rest of his life. Giovanni, despite not being a priest, he wouldn't be ordained, in fact, until after his papal election, or at least very close to it, was named a cardinal at just 28 years of age, in the year 1244 by Pope Innocent IV. Barely a month later, now Cardinal Orsini found himself as one of five cardinals who fled Rome with the Pope thanks to a plot against the pontiff's life by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, and subsequently attended the First Council of Lyon, the Church's 13th ecumenical council, which ended up deposing and excommunicating Fred. Cardinal Orsini and his fellow Red Hats stayed out of Italy until the death of the Emperor, which didn't happen for nearly seven more years. They re-entered the boot in 1251, but wouldn't venture to Rome itself, instead preferring to stay in various places over the ensuing three years until Innocent IV's death in December 1254. Cardinal Orsini participated in his very first papal election, it wouldn't be even close to his last, and that ensued in Naples and helped to elect Pope Alexander IV less than two weeks later. By that point in time, he'd been a cardinal for a decade, but had spent less than six months in Rome. A likely rather annoying game of back and forth commenced for the entirety of Alexander's papacy, a solid five and a half years, 
where the papal court bounced between Rome and various other cities due to the unrest and threat of political violence, to say nothing of the Roman summers. Now, when Alexander died, the spot that Cardinal Orsini found himself in at that point, given that this pope had created no new cardinals, was that he was one of just eight men left to elect the 182nd Bishop of Rome. As one might expect, the papal election of 1261 was a hot mess. Deliberations lasted three whole months, and so divided was the group of eight that they ultimately decided to choose a man outside of their ranks, the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, Jacques Pantaleon, who just happened to be in town from the Holy Land at the time. The man who would become Pope Urban IV, in fact, or better known to fans of the Popecast, as the Pope who gave us the Feast of Corpus Christi, episode 26, was one of the last ever non-cardinals to be elected Pope. Now, Cardinal Orsini was no doubt glad to be through with that election, but it turns out it wouldn't hold a candle to the one that would come just seven years later. The papal election of 1268 to 1271, yes, you heard that right, 1268 to 1271, has gone down in history as the longest stretch of time in the history of the Catholic Church to elect a new bishop of Rome, and was the catalyst for the conclave system that's still in use to this day. Cardinal Orsini was one of 20 cardinal electors present in Viterbo, where the papacy sought asylum for much of the 13th century, and was one of three future popes in the bunch not counting the future victor, blessed Gregory X, who, by the way, we covered in episode two of the Popecast. In short, the political infighting was so great and the deliberations so drawn out that before it was all said and done, three cardinals died, one resigned, and the Viterbo civil officials had locked the cardinals in, reduced their rations to just bread and water, and even went so far as to rip the roof off of the building they were in, all to try and speed them up. To no one's surprise, afterwards, that election caused Gregory X to immediately codify in canon law new regulations for what became known as a papal conclave from the Latin cum clave, for with a key. And finally, if all that election drama wasn't enough, Cardinal Orsini was a witness to the unprecedented year of four popes in 1276, where no less than four popes reigned in a single calendar year, and that has never happened before or since. Now, although Cardinal Orsini wasn't present for the first conclave of 1276 following Gregory X's death, he was present for the second and third, after the untimely deaths of Innocent V and Adrian V, respectively. I'm not sure what was in the water in Viterbo at the time, but even the papacy of Pope John XXI, who was chosen in September 1276 and crowned by Cardinal Orsini himself, wouldn't prove to last more than a handful of months. Incredibly, just when it seemed that John XXI might be the guy with some success and some longevity in the chair of Peter, the roof of a new addition to the Episcopal Palace caved in, mortally wounding him. He died exactly eight months after his election. Now, finally, came Cardinal Orsini's turn. By the time he became Pope Nicholas III in the conclave of 1277, he had helped to elect seven popes in just over 20 years, and that's not even counting the one that he missed. To put that in context, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is the only man still alive to have participated in the August 1978 conclave to elect John Paul I, meaning no living present or former cardinal in 2021 has been in more than three conclaves. And Nicholas should have been a participant in eight and actually participated in seven. After a drawn-out five-and-a-half-month conclave process, the seven cardinal electors settled on Cardinal Orsini, who took the name of Nicholas III, possibly as a nod to Pope Nicholas II, 
who two centuries earlier had made the very first major reforms to papal elections in church history. And it would be fitting if that were the case for Nicholas III for a guy with his resume, sheesh. His papacy officially began the day after Christmas, December 26th, 1277, just one week after he'd been ordained a priest and then a bishop. Nicholas III was above all a talented diplomat and a savvy churchman with a healthy sense of the foundations of the papacy itself. And were St. Catherine of Siena alive at that time, she of course wouldn't live for another century, she would have been proud that the man called Bishop of Rome was working so hard to free the Eternal City from foreign influences and reclaim his rightful home there. Even though he was only Pope for a few years, Nicholas's papacy contained several landmark events, many of which have had long-reaching effects even to the present day. He helped to spur along the beginning of the Habsburg dynasty through strong relations with Rudolf I of Habsburg and yet still strengthened the papal patrimonies by driving a hard bargain with the king, refusing to acknowledge him as Holy Roman Emperor unless several key territories in Italy were returned to papal control. On the home front, Nicholas made the unprecedented move in 1278 that only Roman citizens could from then on become civil officials in the city of Rome. This all but expelled foreign influence from foreign affairs, including compelling the powerful King Charles of Anjou to resign his decade-long post as Roman senator. This was the second of three thorns in Charles's side, too, placed there by the Pope. The first was Nicholas even being elected in the first place, since Charles, being the king of Naples and Sicily, was used to getting his way, and Nicholas wasn't his way. The third thorn was Nicholas III playing spoiler to Charles' ambitions to invade and conquer Constantinople by meeting with representatives of the Byzantine emperor. In fact, that was a twofer. He strengthened papal relations with the East and thwarted the king's plans, and still made it home in time for supper. In spiritual matters, Nicholas was equally calculated. He was firm with an uprising in Hungary that, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, in that country, quote, endangered the very existence of Christianity, end quote, going so far as to threaten the king in a letter with temporal and spiritual punishments if he didn't shape up. And it worked. Nicholas III was also a great patron of the still-new Franciscan order. His dad had been a close personal friend to St. Francis of Assisi, in fact, and so Nicholas naturally had a soft spot for his group of humble friars. As it turns out, one of the only surviving documents in the present day written by Nicholas III is one confirming the official rule of the friars minor, the Franciscans, written in 1279 and entitled Exit Qui Seminat. We'll hear an excerpt from that document at the end of the episode. This pope mercifully added to the number of remaining cardinals in a consistory celebrated on March 12, 1278. Remember, before he got elected, he was one of seven. And among those new cardinals were Nicholas's own brother and nephew, as well as Girolamo Maschi, the head of the Franciscans and future Pope Nicholas IV, the first bishop of Rome to come from that order. It was actually this batch of cardinals that has stained Nicholas's otherwise sterling reputation throughout the centuries, beginning with none other than Dante Alighieri himself in his masterpiece, The Inferno. Pope Nicholas III is depicted in that work in the Eighth Circle of Hell as the chief sinner in a group of those guilty of simony, the selling or purchasing of church offices for personal gain. Simoniacs were described by Dante as being buried headfirst in a crack in the rock floor with the bottoms of their feet on fire. In the story, Nicholas III, being unable to see Dante, mistakes him for Pope Boniface VIII. We're talking about him again, his, uh, his distant relative, whose arrival Nicholas was apparently expecting as a worse simoniac than him. And Dante had apparently no patience for simony, it would seem. 
Dante's depiction presumably also included the Pope's nepotism of promoting his own brother and nephew as cardinals, given that he described them as little bears hanging off of the Pope, or seti in Italian, and thus a pun on the Orsini family name. And that accusation was really the sole defect on an otherwise exceptional life and career. As a Catholic encyclopedia notes, quote, he was an ecclesiastically minded pontiff of great diplomatic ability and, if we accept his acts of nepotism, of unblemished character, end quote. That last part begs the question, though, was Nicholas's nepotism a calculated decision on his part, given the tense political situation at the time? At a time when the French cardinals sought ever greater control, Nicholas seemed to purposefully choose other men outside of the French faction as a way to check that power, and in a world where you have to watch your back, as was the case in those days, who can you trust other than family? Granted, that's all just my speculation, but elevating three men from religious orders in that same batch of cardinals, not counting his nephew who happened to also be a Dominican, isn't nothing either. If anything, Nicholas III was simply ensuring that he could be an effective pontiff by promoting people that he could rely on. He was an effective pontiff, of course, and then also working to prevent a power grab in future conclaves. But at any rate, it would all be for naught. Two of his new cardinals died before he did, and the rest were reportedly bullied into submission by Charles of Anjou after his death before the next papal conclave and forced to vote for his pet candidate the next time around. So what do you do? Nicholas III died rather suddenly of either a stroke or a heart attack on August 22, 1280, having retreated to his summer residence near Viterbo. He was approximately 64 years old. His remains were transferred back to Rome, where he was entombed in St. Peter's Basilica in a chapel built by him and dedicated to the great St. Nicholas. Nicholas III's legacy has turned out to be a mostly positive one, save for the whole headfirst in hell thing. In particular, given Nicholas's desire to make Rome the more permanent home of present and future popes, he took great care to beautify and rebuild many parts of the Eternal City, including the Lateran Palace and St. Peter's itself. A permanent papal residence was also in there, and also an expanded property that he acquired and turned into the Vatican Gardens, now a 57-acre tract of lush greenery, which to this day remains a gorgeous and indispensable respite for prayer and relaxation for popes and tourists alike. And all thanks to Pope Nicholas III. Well, just one last thing, as we do with every episode that we're able. As promised, here's the beginning of the great document written by Nicholas III, Exit qui seminat, a confirmation of the rule of the friars minor, meant to settle a dispute among the Franciscans about a strict or a more relaxed observance of the rule of life set down by St. Francis of Assisi decades earlier. Here's Nicholas, quote, He who sows went forth from the bosom of the Father into the world to sow his own seed, clothed with the garment of humanity, namely the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to sow the evangelical word among the approved and reprobate, the foolish and the learned, the studious and the slothful, and according to the prophets to be the farmer on earth who would disperse his own seed, the evangelical doctrine, without destruction among all men who, drawing all things to himself, had come to save each of them, who afterwards for the salvation of all men immolated his very self to God the Father as the price of human redemption. However, he allowed this seed to fall among individuals by the communicative charity of God, not so other seed which he let fall, dispersed upon the road, namely upon hearts accessible to the suggestions of the demons, and still other seed which he let fall, among thorns, namely upon hearts lacerated by the solicitude for riches, and therefore one was trampled by depraved defections, the other by aridity, 
since it was lacking in the humor of grace. The rest, suffocated by inordinate solicitudes, was overgrown. But good ground received the other seed, meek and docile in heart. This is the meek and docile religion of the Friars Minor, the Franciscans, rooted in poverty and humility by the gracious confessor of Christ, Francis, which, sprouting the sprout from the true seed, strew the same by means of the rule among his sons, whom he generated to be his own, and God's, through his ministry and the observance of the gospel. These very ones are the sons who, by the teaching of Jacob, have received the eternal word, the Son of God, sown by human nature in the garden of the virginal womb, and powerful to save souls in meekness. These are those professors of the holy rule, which is founded on the evangelical discourse, strengthened by the example of the life of Christ, and made firm by the sermons and deeds of his apostles, the founders of the church militant. This is the sight of our God and Father, that clean and immaculate religion, which descending from the Father of lights, through his Son, having been handed on to the apostles verbally and by exemplar, and at last through the Holy Spirit to blessed Francis, and having inspired those following him, contains entirely in itself a quasi-testimony of the Trinity. End quote. Well, that's about it for the story of Nicholas III, the Pope who wasn't even a priest yet. We really hope you enjoyed it especially if you're a new listener. And on that note, if you do enjoy the Popecast, we'd be honored if you would share it with a friend or a family member. It obviously helps to spread the word about the show, but Lord knows more people than ever could use a little bit of historical perspective these days. Because after all, these are strange times that we live in, but no stranger than an age's past. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>